talking all things wound care. This is The Pressure Effect, brought to you by Smith & Nephew. Welcome to The Pressure Effect from Smith & Nephew. I'm your host, Dr. David Zobel. On today's episode, we continue our four-part series that examines a fictional pressure injury case from beginning to end. This is part two of avoidable or unavoidable, the unstageable pressure injury of Mr. Y. Our guest today is Kathy Milney, an advanced practice wound ostomy continence nurse at Connecticut Clinical Nursing Associates. Kathy and I will further discuss the case of Mr. Y and discuss some of the best practices and guideline recommendations for pressure injury prevention. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. To start off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background in nursing and about your experience with hospital-acquired pressure injuries? Sure. I have been a WOC nurse since 1990, so I've had a couple of decades under my belt now. And I actually work across the continuum. So I do see patients in the acute care setting, long-term care setting, assisted living, outpatient wound center. So I kind of see how these cases might start in an acute care setting and then follow them all through until healing. And I've seen such tremendous changes in the way we try to, A, prevent, but also manage pressure injuries in the acute care setting. That's great, Kathy. I've been pretty much seeing wound care patients since the 1990s also. And things have changed, and I think that your experience is going to be very appreciated for this case today. Today, we're going to be continuing with the fictional case of Mr. Y, which is the case of a hospital-acquired pressure injury. Our focus in this episode will be discussing some of the best practices and guideline recommendations for pressure injury prevention. So let's get right to it. Could we start by reestablishing the case of Mr. Y and set up this case study, Kathy? Sure. Dr. Rutsi did a great job on the first episode of this podcast series. So Mr. Y is a 43-year-old male with a history of paraplegia. He has been a para since his teens, never had a pressure injury at all. He developed a terrible pneumonia, was hospitalized and actually intubated in the ICU And he was actually placed on a low air loss uh, surface when he was in the ICU. Unfortunately, it was documented in the medical record that by the staff that he was too sick to turn and reposition. So they didn't. And it's interesting, his vital signs were actually pretty good. And his mean arterial pressures never really went below that critical 65, 60 level. He stayed usually between the 70s and 80s. He was extubated and transferred on day five to the medical surgical floor. And then he was transferred from this low air loss mattress to a typical foam, high specification foam mattress that you see in the typical medical surgical floors. They found a sacral pressure injury on day 10. And They started a bordered foam and turning and repositioning on day 12. He was discharged at home on day 14. They did not make any arrangements for nursing care. 
And they were basically told the family and the patient, and his family was wonderful and very, very helpful and supportive. They were told, no, this thing will heal on its own. And if you have any problems, just call the hospital. And he ended up in the wound center and where he underwent debridement. And it was a full thickness pressure injury. So, Kathy, getting back to the ICU, you seem to have an opinion about whether this patient was too sick to be turned or not. Is there any patient that really is too sick to be turned? So when you start reading the literature and specifically NPIAP guidelines, which can be downloaded actually from their website for no charge, you can see that the literature supports that there probably is never a time where you can't even make small positional changes. You may not be able to turn them, prone them, which would be a very good thing to do for this patient with pneumonia. We have saw that, that success in, in COVID and just because you have pneumonia and don't have COVID doesn't mean you can't be prone. But in this case, there's certainly no reason not to try small repositioning efforts. So during that period of the hospitalization, the documentation you felt was adequate or were there some gaps involved? I think there are a lot of gaps in this case. And the first gap, and one of the things that I like to see is what we call four eyes. And that means you have four eyes on the patient. So when they were transferring this man from the emergency department where he surely showed up to the intensive care unit, they would have had to transfer him from the stretcher to the bed. It's a perfect time and get the sheets out from underneath them. Perfect time to have four eyes. So two nurses or physician PA and P plus one of the nurses to really do a head to toe body check. It's quick because your patient may be unstable, but it really needs to be done. And so that's probably my, my first thought here is that there was no documentation on admission that this patient had any skin alterations. Uh, was he at high risk? Absolutely. I think there are a number of gaps. The second gap is there really wasn't any turning and repositioning because he was, quote unquote, too unstable. There's nothing about nutritional support at all. So when you look at the Cochrane reviews, um, it's not just doing a risk assessment that makes you give good care. It's really a whole bundle. A risk assessment is part of that, but you really need a number of interventions all bundled together to prevent pressure injuries. So that's, I can keep going about, about all these gaps. I think that's incredibly <laughs> helpful, Kathy. The patient sounded like they had a debridement once they got out of the hospital setting. They didn't have any other debridement or intervention while they were in the hospital. Is that correct? That is correct. And the question is, this may have started as a deep tissue injury. It may have been purple and the skin may have been intact. And perhaps, and my guess is, uh, judging by what I have seen in acute care settings, not only in my own facility, but in other facilities that I've been consulted at, is that nursing staff really get very confused about what is a deep tissue injury and what is a stage one pressure ulcer. And I'm assuming that they thought that this was a stage one pressure injury because they told the patient, don't worry, this will heal up. And really what they were seeing was the evolution or early stages of an evolving deep tissue injury. Right. And in a lot of these patients, the evolution is ongoing. So sometimes it, even in an individual with trained eyes, it can still be very challenging. Would you agree? Absolutely. There's technology out there that can scan people so you can see color changes or heat changes 
in the patient. It's pretty early in the adoption stage system-wide, health, U.S. healthcare-wide, but you do see some of the more progressive acute care facilities adopting this type of technology. So, Kathy, let's step away from the case for a moment to look at things a little bit more broadly. What are reasonable preventative measures that facilities should be implementing to prevent pressure injuries and justify the term unavoidability? Okay, so Dr. Ruzzi did a great job describing what unavoidability is. However, there is no standard in acute care about and no regulations about what an unavoidable is in an acute care facility. And when the surveyors come in or if there's a complaint uh, or if there's a legal case, people draw from the long-term care surveyor guidelines and the section is 686, I believe. And so that's where we get this, what is avoidable, what's unavoidable. The things that I see here is that, again, we need to bundle our activities. Not one intervention is going to do it all. It has to be turning and repositioning. It has to be an adequate support surface. It has to be the risk assessment. And that risk assessment really needs to be ongoing. And the care plan needs to be documented. And you have to be able to update that care plan if you can't do that intervention. Right. So it's multifaceted. And it's very difficult, I think, in acute care because I find that acute care facilities do a couple of things. They have an issue, and whether it is uh, pneumonia, urinary tract infections, blind sepsis, whatever the the, uh, quality measure that people are focusing on, they do this big rollout, and then they forget about it. And I think one of the biggest things that we don't do well is to keep this pressure, so to speak, on the staff to continue to do prevention. I think that's that's very well said that there's sort of the bundle of the entire care. It is not just one specific item or even several items, but a really bundle of care that needs to be initiated by the hospital system and carried through. And the enthusiasm to carry that through sometimes wanes over time. One thing you didn't mention that I want to talk about is, is what do you think the, the role, if any, of, of prophylactic foam dressings would be in a case like this or in a, an acute care setting in an ICU patient? So the data is really strong about using a five-layer or multi-layer foam dressing in terms of prevention. A lot of it is related to the ability to maintain a very good microclimate in that cypril area. Uh, moisture, I always say moisture kills. Because if you have incontinence, especially fecal incontinence, you are risking that skin barrier function tremendously, which then uh, takes less pressure, less shear to actually break down and cause damage to the tissue. So when it comes to best practices, are there any tips, essential pieces of information a provider should keep in mind to prevent pressure injuries? Sure. So, of course, you have to do the bundle. You have to do the turning, the repositioning, the pressure redistribution surface, the multi-layer foam, but you have to do education and you have to educate the staff, keep it up, and you have to educate the patient and their families because they really need to be engaged within for their own health and the safety of their own skin to participate. Now, it's really hard in the intensive care patient because they are usually too sick to participate. However, you can educate the family and to 
help you be accountable. You know, as we remember during COVID, we saw all these signs in the elevator saying, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. And if you don't see us wash our hands, remind us. Well, we should be doing the same thing for pressure injury. If you haven't seen your loved one be repositioned when you come in, then remind us and we will be more than happy to help out. That's great, Kathy. Do you have any final thoughts for the audience today? I, I think from my perspective, you really drove home the sort of aspect of the entire bundled approach towards pressure injury prevention. And it's right. not just one specific act, but it's a continuum throughout the care of a patient as we first meet them until they leave our care. Any final thoughts? No, I'm, uh, I'm thank you very much, very much for having me. And I think we have an ongoing challenge that I think all of us can rise to meet and do the best thing for our patients. Thank you again for having me. That's well said, Kathy. That's it for this episode of The Pressure Effect. I want to extend a big thanks to Kathy Milney for joining us today to dive more into the case of Mr. Y and discuss some of the best practices and guideline recommendations for pressure injury prevention. Tune in next episode as we continue our four-part series, Avoidable or Unavoidable? The Unstageable Pressure Injury of Mr. Y. Next episode, we'll talk about common pitfalls in determining unavoidability and more. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Dr. David Zabel. See you next time.